It's Christmas! Well, tonight, thank God it's there instead of you. Oh, Christmas Day, my ass. I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Christmas to you and all. It's November, which means it's actually kind of sort of Christmas, right? I know Americans have something called Thanksgiving and some people like to pretend nothing starts till December, but here in the UK we're past Halloween and bonfire night, there's plenty of Christmas treats appearing in shops, and a few adverts have started popping up on the TV and the internet. I may have to ask some fellow Christmas podcasters to review the adverts for me again this December. But I'm in full Christmas mode now, and putting out two episodes this month and two next month, perhaps with a bonus sneaky music one as usual. In my first November episode, I'll be talking about my new Christmas poll online, heading back to Christmas at wartime to see what people did for fun, sharing some British covers of A Winter Wonderland, and seeing a mashup of Dickens and time travel with Doctor Who. Let's head back in time to start with, or forward, or to alien worlds, because we're heading back to the timey-wimey world of Doctor Who. I've already covered a few of the specials here, namely The Christmas Invasion, The Voyage of the Damned, and The Runaway Bride, but there's still some more to go. Sadly this year we won't be getting a festive or New Year's special. Jodie Whittaker has just departed as the 13th Doctor to make way for the next Doctor, identified as Chuti Gatwa, a great young actor, making him the first black actor to take on the role. But there was a sting in the tale of the next Doctor, which I won't spoil in case anyone hasn't seen the latest special, which is very well worth checking out. But we're going further back in time, to Christmas Day 2010, with Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor in A Christmas Carol. This story, obviously, takes inspiration from the classic Dickens novel about a bitter, cruel old miser named Scrooge being shown the error of his ways via spirits of the past, present and future. I'm sure you all know it pretty well. It's still one of the best stories of all time, in my opinion, and I reread it every year. So it seems perfect for a Doctor Who story, what with the timey-wimey nonsense. However, Rather than a straight adaptation, the story is twisted and turned into some interesting directions. Joining the Doctor at this point are his companions Amy Pond, played by the wonderful Karen Gillan, and Rory, played by Arthur Darville. Guesting in this episode as our Scrooge-like figure, called Kazran Sardak, is the brilliant Olivier and BAFTA award-winning actor Michael Gambon. Many of you will know him as Albus Dumbledore in the latter Harry Potter films. But I do want to note he played the Ghost of Christmas Present in a 2001 animated version of A Christmas Carol in which Nicolas Cage voiced Marley. It may be coming up at the end of our episode in a slight discussion about a new poll. Back to Doctor Who, and we start this episode in the midst of some disastrous action as a spaceship seems to be crashing. Entering atmosphere now! 
Level, keep a level. Level with what? I can't see. What is that stuff? Clouds? What kind of clouds? Are you sending a distress signal? Ah, it's not me. Who's in the honeymoon suite? On board in the honeymoon suite are Amy and Rory, but they put out a distress call and a small blue box appears. Come on, Doctor, come on. There's something coming alongside us, something small like a shuttle. Just this one, stop your Mark, incoming message. It's from the other ship. Entry. What does that mean? It's Christmas. The story then goes down to the city below the tumultuous clouds with some opening narration from Michael Gambon, aka Karzan Sardak. On every world, wherever people are, in the deepest part of the winter, at the exact midpoint, everybody stops and turns and hugs, as if to say, well done. Well done, everyone. We're halfway out of the dark. Back on Earth, we call this Christmas, or the winter solstice. On this world, the first settlers called it the Crystal Feast. You know what I call it? I call it expecting something for nothing! He has people cryogenically frozen in exchange for loans, and is being appropriately scroogey about it all. How much? Uh, it's, uh, 4,500 Gideons, sir. You took a loan of 4,500 Gideons. And Little Miss Christmas is my security. We're not asking for her back. Just let her have one day. Let her have Christmas with us. Um, sir, it's the, uh, president. Tell him I'm busy. Plus, he doesn't seem to care about the potential crashing ship. The, the president says there's a galaxy-class ship trapped in the cloud layer and, well, we have to let it land. Or? Well, all the crash, sir. Oh. Well, that's a kind of landing, isn't it? You know. It's from Earth, sir, registering over 4,000 life forms on board. Oh. <laughs> Not if we wait a bit. <laughs> you can't just let it crash, sir. But then a doctor arrives down the chimney. Ah. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Blimey. Sorry. Christmas Eve on a rooftop. Saw a chimney. My whole brain just went, what the hell? Don't worry, Fat Fuller will be doing the rounds later. I'm just scoping out the general chimneyness. Yes. Nice size. Good traction. Big tick. Fat Fella. Father Christmas. Santa Claus. Or, as I've always known him, Jeff. There's no such person as Father Christmas. Oh, yeah. Me and Father Christmas. Frank Sinatra's Hunting Lodge, 1952. See him at the back with the blonde, Albert Einstein, the three of us together. Watch out. Okay? And he lays out why Sardak is the person who should help. This big flashy lighty thing is connected to the spire in your dome, yeah? And it controls the sky. Well, technically it controls the clouds, which technically aren't clouds at all. Well, they're clouds of tiny particles of ice. Ice clouds love that. Who's she? Nobody important. Nobody important. Blimey, that's amazing. Do you know, in 900 years of time and space, I've never met anyone who wasn't important before. But then the Doctor finds out that the console controls are... They're isomorphic, one-to-one. -one. They respond only to me. Oh, you fibber. Isomorphic. There's no such thing. 
These controls rise for more things. But Sardak refuses to help, and the Doctor has to hatch a plan after seeing him stopping himself from hitting a poor child, and he starts to consider. But you didn't hit the boy. Well, I will next time! You see, you won't. Now why? What am I missing? Get out! Get out of this house! The chairs, of course, the chairs. Stupid me, the chairs. Chairs. There's a portrait on the wall behind me. It looks like you, but it's too old, so it's your father. All the chairs are angled away from it. Daddy's been dead for 20 years, but you still can't get comfortable where he can see you. There's a Christmas tree in the painting, but none in this house on Christmas Eve. You're scared of him, and you're scared of being like him, and good for you. You're not like him, not really. Do you know why? Why? Because you didn't hit the boy. We also find out that on this alien planet, there are... Fish that can swim in fog. I love new planets. We jump to a sleeping elderly Kazran, being awoken by a projection of himself as a boy, being admonished by his cruel father, also played by Gambon. People say we don't have to be afraid of the fish. They're not really interested you in You don't that. listen to people. You listen to me. Ah! Sorry, father. My house. And the doctor reveals himself as the one responsible and declares himself... I'm a ghost of Christmas past. He leaves the elderly Kazran, but then the projected video shows the Doctor arriving in his childhood bedroom, declaring himself a new babysitter. If you're my babysitter, why are you climbing in the window? Because if I was climbing out of the window, I'd be going in the wrong direction. Pay attention. But Mrs Mantovani's always my babysitter. Times change. What do you say? See? He goes on to help the young Kazran lure in some fish from the sky, but accidentally attracts a shark. Maybe just wait there for a moment. Oh, what colour is it? Big. Big colour. And then tries to get his sonic screwdriver back from the shark's mouth. Tiny shark, I mean, if I had my screwdriver, I could probably send a pulse and stun it. Well, where's your screwdriver? Well, concentrating on the pluses. Within reach. You know, there's a real chance the way it's switching the doorway is keeping its mouth open. There is. Just agree with me, because I've only got two goes, and then it's your turn. Two goes? Two arms! Right there! Okay. Open wide! He only gets half of it out, and in trying to save the then ailing shark by putting it in the cryogenic room, the doctor uses some timey wimey magic travel to find out the code from an older Kazran. Ah, uh, what's the number? 7258. I don't know! Place is full of alarms. It's not just the door I need. The number! 7258! I need the number! I'm not allowed to know until I'm older! 7258! Just what I was after. Thank you. 7258! 7258! They encounter a girl we saw at the start of the episode locked in one of the chambers, played by the singer Catherine Jenkins. And she helps when the shark wakes up and heads after the pair with her voice.
It's not really the singing, of course. Yes, it is. Nah. Fish love the singing, it's true. Nah, the notes resonate in the ice crystals, causing a delta wave pattern in the fog. Ow! Fish bit me. Shut up, then. The Doctor and young Kazran take to visiting the girl, Abigail, each Christmas, taking her out on adventures such as flying with a shark like a reindeer in Santa's sleigh. New memories begin to form for the elderly Kazran, but a sinister ticker counts down outside Abigail's chamber, and one visit, Abigail and a more adult Kazran's relationship blossoms. You've grown. Yeah. And now you're blushing. Sorry. That's okay. They spend Christmas with her family this time, with the doctor trying to entertain the young boy. Pick a card, any card at all. Every Christmas Eve. I don't understand. I'm not sure I do. You memorize the card, you put it back in the deck. Don't let me see it. Is this what it looked like last year? Well, it doesn't have to be exactly the same. I'm starting again. Come on, Kazran, we're starting again. That's Sardik's boy, isn't it? He's not like his father. His father treats everyone like cattle. One day that boy will do the same. No. He's different. Three of clubs. No. Who's sure? Because I'm very good at card tricks. It wasn't the three of clubs. Well, of course it wasn't, because it was the seven of diamonds. No. Boy, stop it. You're doing it wrong. But on the next visit, Abigail tells a terrible secret to Kazran whilst at a swinging historical party. Guys, we've really got to go quite quickly. I just accidentally got engaged to Marilyn Monroe. How do you keep going like that? Do you breathe out your ears? Hello? Sorry. Hello? Guys, she's phoned a chapel. There's a car outside. This is happening now. Fine, thank you. I'll just go and get married then, shall I? See how you like that. But neither reveal it to the doctor, as Kazran tells him at the end of the day. Listen, why don't we leave it? Sorry, leave what? Oh, you know, this. Every Christmas Eve is getting a bit old. Old? Well, Christmas is for kids, isn't it? I've got, I've got some work with my dad now. I'm going to focus on that. Get that cloud belt under control. Sorry, I, I didn't realise I was boring you. But not your fault. Times change. And we cut back to an elderly Kazran who is still bitter and doesn't care about helping anyone. Mr. President, we've been through this. It's not going to crash on my house, and what's it got to do with me? Yes, I know. 4003. But as a very old friend of mine once took a very long time to explain, life isn't fair. Another attempt is made, though, with a kind of ghost of Christmas present thing over the projected holograms and voices of the people aboard the crashing ship. They're holograms. Projections like me. Who are they? The people on the ship up there, the ones that you're going to let die tonight. Why are they singing? For their lives. Which one's Abigail? The doctor told me. Did he now? Well, he doesn't hold back, you know the doctor. How do I? I never met him before tonight. But his conversation with Amy Pond during this reveals the big secret with Abigail. Why is she still in there? You could let her out any time. Oh, yes. Any time at all. Any time I choose. Then why don't you? 
This is what the doctor did to me. Abigail was ill when she went into the ice, on the point of death. I suppose the rest of the ice helped her. But she's used up her time. All those Christmas Eves with me. I could release her any time I want. And she would live a single day. Still, the Doctor makes one final attempt to show Kazran the future by bringing a young Kazran to see himself saying these horrible things. And show me the future. Prove me wrong. I am showing it to you. I'm showing it to you right now. So what do you think? Is this who you want to become, Kazran? Kazran is now willing to help, but his emotional and mental changes mean the console controls no longer work. Oh, of course, stupid, stupid doctor. What's wrong? Tell me, what is it? It's what? you. It's you. I've changed you too much. The machine doesn't recognize you. But now my father programmed No, your father would never have programmed it for the man you are now. Then what do we do? Um... Their only hope seems to be bringing out Abigail to sing to calm the sky through the sonic screwdriver, but Kazran has a dilemma. Her voice resonates perfectly with the ice crystals. It calmed the shark. It will calm the sky, too. Could you do it? Could you do this? Think about it, Doctor. One last day with your beloved. We stay with you, choose. Christmas. Christmas Day. Look at you. You're so old now. I think you waited a bit too long, didn't you? Hoarding my days like an old miser. <laughs> Abigail is let free for her final day, and her singing seems to be working as the doctor explains. Well, the singing resonates in the crystals. It's feeding back and forth between the two halves of the screwdriver now. One song filling the sky. Crystals will align and I'll feed in a controlled phase loop and the clouds will unlock. What does that mean, unlock? What happens when a cloud unlocks? Something that hasn't happened in this town for a very long time now. And of course it starts snowing as any good Christmas special should. And of course the day is saved. We'll fly normally. Can you land? I can even land well. Oh, I did it. The doctor did it. The Doctor chats to Amy and Rory, promising new honeymoon ideas and contemplating an ending. Pleasure, right? Come on then, let's go. Uh, got any more honeymoon ideas? Well, there's a moon that's made of actual honey. Well, not actual honey, and it's not actually a moon, and technically it's alive, and a bit carnivorous, but there are some lovely views. Yeah. Great, thanks. Are you... are you okay? Of course I'm okay, you? Of course. It'll be their last day together, won't it? 
Everything's got to end someday. Otherwise, nothing would ever get stopped. Ah, uh, your phone was ringing. Someone called Marilyn. Actually, sounds like the Marilyn. Doctor. Tell her I'll phone her back. And, and that was never a real chapel. And we fully end the episode with Abigail and Kazran taking one final shark sleigh ride through the sky and being, as the Doctor puts it, halfway out of the dark. I love this special. I think it might be my favourite of the Doctor Who Christmas episodes. It's got a real festive feel to it throughout and hits the feel as well. Its take on Dickens' classic story is authentic and modern, utilising the time machine in really interesting, innovative ways, especially the final reveal of showing a young Kazran his future self to trigger the change and realisation. I think Matt Smith's at his best in this as well, giving it 110%, bounding around like a child, albeit an ancient face-changing genius alien child. He has a playfulness that works in this special, but was able to drop into more serious wonderment at times to deliver some killer lines. I feel like they could have been a bigger part for Amy and Rory, but Michael Gambon shows his brilliant acting chops with the time he's given, moving from miser to the wonder of his memories to repentant love and care by the end. It's a great one-off story and showcases the best of the sci-fi setting applied to a classic tale. When you think of Christmas music, you think of the three C's, Crosby, Cole, and Carey. And I'm here to tell you there's a fourth C that should be on your Christmas list this and every year, Clarkson. Underneath the tree has amazing vocals, bopping tempo, and festive vibes that will fill you with Christmas spirit well into the new year. So download it, stream it, or request it on the radio so we can get underneath the tree at the top of the charts. I'm Tim Babb from the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast, and I approve this message. Before Spooktober hit, I was taking some time each episode to explore accounts of Christmas during war from a wonderful book I found called Christmas at Wartime by Caroline Taggart. I've covered all sorts of areas from decorations to presents, and I thought I'd spend this episode with celebrations approaching on what entertainment people partook in during those difficult years to keep those spirits up. Without TV, radio was the main form of common media entertainment for people during World War II. The recently formed BBC had the home service, and on Christmas Eve 1939 played a carol service from King's College, Cambridge, a seasonal drama called Christmas at Dingley Dell, and P.G. Woodhouse's The Crime Wave at Landings, showing people still enjoyed a thrill at Christmas. Music was always a popular cheap pastime at home, whether singing or playing instruments, and this continued during the war, especially at Christmas, as Pauline explains, with her family including some skilled musicians that would perform in local clubs. My aunt had a really good voice, and had been in Ivor Novello shows. At home at Christmas, Grandad always played the piano and they sang songs like Old Father Thames Keep Rolling Along. Grandad and one of my uncles both thought they were comedians, and after dinner, they used to come out with the jokes. One of the things they used to do was tell my grandmother that they were going to take the piano upstairs. No, no, she'd say, I don't want the piano upstairs. Well, the one they insisted on moving was an imaginary piano, a grand piano. They'd get round it and say things like, up your end, he's got it on my foot, and make out they were carrying this imaginary piano. And my grandmother used to sigh and say, you children, I don't know. 
She said children, but my uncles were in their thirties by then, they just liked messing about. Card games were popular, although family cheating still occurred, as Nancy remembers. After Christmas lunch we'd play charades or cards, Nap and Newmarket were the games and we played for pennies. We had a big mirror in the sitting room and my brother was naughty. Dad would always sit with his back to the mirror and my brother used to say, hold your cards up dad, so he could see a reflection of what my father had in his hand. Board games were a popular fun game for Christmas just like today, with Betty remembering a game called Bagatelle. It was a large wooden rectangle with one rounded end and lots of little nails stuck in the board making horseshoe shapes. You shot metal balls around the board with a plunger, like on a pub pinball machine, and the idea was to get the balls to sit in the horseshoes and score points. I haven't seen it for years, but we used to play it all the time at Christmas. The only problem was that you had to take it in turns, and my little sister wasn't always very good at waiting till I had finished. It seems like some things never change with siblings. I remember on the PlayStation, me and my brother fighting over who got to play and who got to go first and who got to have the next go. There were some even cheaper and easier games to play though with a paper and pen and these could become riotous and naughty too, as Ken remembers. The rules of the game went something like this. The first person wrote down the name of a man, the second the name of a woman, the third the place where they met. The paper was folded each time so that no one knew what had been written before. Next came he said to her, then she said to him, and finally, and the consequence was... We had a particularly prim great aunt Maud, her name was, who had died just before the war, and let's say we didn't always remember her with the greatest respect. It's extraordinary how many games of consequence involved Aunt Maud meeting the milkman, the butcher's boy, and even once Errol Flynn. Let's jump to something a little posher, as Helen Harding in an anthology of Christmas memories recalled events she was privy to thanks to her husband's role as private secretary to King George VI and the two princesses she mentions were the future and recently late, Queen Elizabeth II and her sister, Princess Margaret. After the war came, there were many changes in all our lives, and especially changes at Christmas. The time for rejoicing was taken away. But during those most strenuous years, there were one or two moments when it was possible to revive a little of the happiness. Some children had been forced to stay in London, in spite of the exodus of their companions. St Martin in the Fields, the most all-embracing of churches had gathered in these poor small wanderers looking after them, teaching them, and doing what it could to make sure they were safe off the streets of London. And one year at Christmas time, with the help of those who minister at St Martin's, I had a tree at St James Palace, a really lovely tree, in spite of the war, and a source of great enjoyment to myself as well as to them. The lights were lit once more for a short time round this symbol of nativity, and we were able to bring to the children a little of what was good, in the good old unaltered ways, so they brought joy to us all. Then during the war, a Christmas pantomime was inaugurated at Windsor Castle to raise funds for the Merchant Navy, and everyone helped, not only by subscribing, but by taking an active part when needed to assist the producer and performers, to paint scenery, to play in the band, or to help with costumes. The principal actors were the princesses, friends of theirs from the locality and the village schoolchildren, many of whom had come down from London and joined the local school for the war. They were all treated as performers and actors, not as people of any particular class, and indeed they were of all classes. There is nothing like a good dramatic performance where your achievement is all that counts to extinguish class consciousness. Of all these occasions, the one I loved most was the Nativity Play, which was put on in St George's Hall, a great long gallery with huge windows. There was a raised day at the end of the room where the play took place, 
It was beautifully produced. The singing was exquisite and the drama itself vivid and fresh. It took place at a very bad time during the war and was a deeply moving presentation. The most striking moment was when the three kings came in procession, walking up the length of the hall with Princess Elizabeth leading them. She was dressed in pageantry of ancient kingship and carried a casket of gold which had been lent her by her mother. She moved with beauty and nobility and a deep emotion was felt by the audience and at the end everyone was snivelling away and swallowing lumps in the throat and generally presenting an unsightly appearance as they dabbed at their faces. Somebody said, there's hardly a dry eye in this hall and the Queen said, I know, it's such a wonderful story. But the feeling was more complex than that, a deeper sense of the present and how much we had to lose if the dark hour of the outer world engulfed us, a sense of the beauty that we all cherish most. A lovely story, especially taking into account the recent death of Queen Elizabeth II, to see what she was like as a child putting on this nativity. But some young women didn't want to miss out on fun entertainment either, especially the older, younger women, and wanted to attend Christmas parties when soldiers were on leave, despite the potential dangers, as Martha remembers. I had dark hair and quite dark skin, so I didn't mind so much, but I had two fair-skinned friends, two sisters, who were worried that their legs looked pale and blotchy. They used to sponge them all over with diluted gravy brown, or cocoa, which was fine, as long as you didn't get caught in the rain. If you did, it would run all over the place. You could buy cheap versions of the brands, but they had a tendency to make your legs glow yellow under the lights in a dance. Again, not the glamorous look we were striving for. We used to spend a lot of time in the Paramount Ballroom in Tottenham Court Road. There were always lots of American servicemen there, and they taught us new dances like the jitterbug. It was exhilarating. The more adventurous partners would throw you over their shoulders so you exposed some leg and even a bit of knicker. Not the sort of thing you told your mum about. I remember being there during a Christmas leave and hearing the air raid warnings go off. Of course, we should have all headed down to the shelters, but we just kept on dancing. Fortunately, no one dropped a bomb near us that night, or a lot of people would have been killed. What does a poet and his friends who are Christmas geeks do when they get together? They get drunk and argue about Yuletide lit. It's time to get lit for Christmas. Join us as we open the liquor cabinet, grab a book off the shelf, and have a little boozy conversation about what warms our chestnuts and makes us holly and jolly. Find out the best screwdriver to scrooge with. Get the recipe for Gift of the Magi Mojitos. Enjoy a little Peppermint Patty Polar Express. Everyone's welcome at this party. It's time to do some Jingle Bell Jello shots and talk about the great, and maybe not so great, works of Christmas literature. Hurry up. The fireplace is roaring and Bing Crosby's crooning. We're two drinks in, and the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future are flowing. Grab a cup of cheer and find a place on the couch. It is time to get lit for Christmas. Finally, the weather is just about getting colder and bleaker and darker. For many, it's not that welcome, but I quite like the wintry weather, at least until January hits. So let's head into a winter wonderland.
The song Winter Wonderland was written back in 1934 by Felix Bernard and Richard Bernard Smith. The lyricist Smith supposedly wrote the song after seeing a park covered in snow in his hometown of Honesdale, Pennsylvania. The song itself is about a couple in love experiencing a joyful winter's time together, building and chatting to a snowman, strolling through this wintry wonderland and dreaming by a fire. The first recorded version was with Artie Shaw with RCA Victor's Orchestra. Guy Lombardo recorded it later that year and had a hit with the song which has since become intertwined with the festive season, although the lyrics don't actually mention anything specifically Christmassy. But the winter setting and snowman chat is enough to push it into the festive feels, never mind the opening lyric of sleigh bells ring. When else are there sleigh bells? The song has been covered over 200 times by artists such as Tony Bennett, Darlene Love and Ella Fitzgerald, but I'm going to share some British covers today, and hopefully some you haven't heard before. Let's begin with one you probably have. The American Society of Composers actually said this 1987 cover was the most commonly played of the song according to their records. It's an intriguing 80s synth-pop take on the song, from the Eurythmics, with compelling vocals as always from the wonderful Annie Lennox. It appeared on A Very Special Christmas, a compilation to benefit the Special Olympics, and it's a great take on a classic tune. Love knows no climb, romance can blossom any old time. Here in the open, we're walking and hoping together. Sleigh bells ring, I listening. In the lane, snow is glistening. Jumping forward to a recent more jazzy cover from Jamie Cullum, an English jazz pop performer who's flitted in and out of the limelight over the last decade or so, bringing a jazzy style to the charts occasionally. He's put out nine albums, with the most recent being a full Christmas record called The Piano Man at Christmas in 2020. An extended edition the following year included this smooth take on Winter Wonderland. Sings a love song We go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the manor we can build a snowman And pretend that he's passing ground He'll say I am Mary, we'll say no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on we'll conspire As we dream Next up is a singer and songwriter who found fame with a boy band back in the 90s called Take That. Take That never released an actual Christmas song, but Gary Barlow rectified this with a solo festive album, The Dream of Christmas, that came out last year. There are a few originals, but as with most records like this, the majority of tracks are covers of classics, and his take on Winter Wonderland takes a sort of big band style approach with singing trio, the Papini Sisters. Pretend that he is passing round. You 
I'll say, are you married? He'll say, no, ma'am. But you can do the job and you're in town. Later we'll conspire as we dance, dance, dance by the fire. To face all afraid the plans that we made. Walking in a winter wonderland. And how about hearing a very brand new version? only out last month from another British pop singer who made a comeback after gaining fame back in the early 2000s. Joss Stone showcased a bluesy soul vibe and voice with her debut album nominated for the Mercury Prize. She was also nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys and at the BBC Sound of 2004. This version of Winter Wonderland from her new festive album, Merry Christmas Love, sounds very much like an old version musically, but with her soulful vocals giving some huskiness to the song. Another slightly soulful take on the song is Scottish singer Emily Sanday. She's released four albums, won two Brit Awards, been awarded an OBE for services to music, and performed at the Olympics opening and closing ceremonies in London. She has a great voice and showcases it on this version of Winter Wonderland, which appeared on the soundtrack to a 2013 movie called The Best Man Holiday. Walking in a winter wonderland Finally, something a bit different, another Scottish artist, but a band this time called Cocteau Twins, who play gothic dreamy rock music with sometimes indecipherable vocal lyrics. The lead singer Elizabeth Fraser has a wonderfully unique voice and the band recorded eight albums for the record labels 4AD and Fontana. Rather unusually for a gothic shoegazy group, they released a festive EP called Snow in 1993. It has covers of Frosty the Snowman and, of course, Winter Wonderland.
Finally, a couple of years ago, I did a poll online of Jacob Marley's, asking for you to vote for the best Jacob Marley's across different Christmas Carol adaptations. The finalists were Marley and Marley from Muppets Christmas Carol and Gary Oldman in the motion capture film from 2009. Of course, the crotchety old Muppets won. So I thought I'd kick off another poll this year and move to the jolliest of characters, the ghost of Christmas present. Evidently inspired by a classic Father Christmas, in the book he's a shining beacon of celebration wearing green fur-lined robes, carrying a magical torch with a wreath of holly round his head. I actually have a costume of him that I wear frequently at school as I teach, especially during December when I read out a Christmas carol to kids, or just to wander around and make kids a little bit scared or a little bit excited about Christmas. But I've selected 16 cinematic or televisual takes on the big jolly spirit. Matchups in the first round have been randomised and will be available for voting online with images and video clips. And here are the first matchups. The first matchup is between Jesse L. Martin in the musical version of A Christmas Carol from 2004. If you don't know Jesse L. Martin, he was in the musicals Rent and also he was in a Muppets Letters to Santa Christmas special. He also appeared as The Flash's dad in the TV show, or stepdad I should say. He is going to be against, from Christmas Carol the Movie, an animated special from 2001, voiced by Michael Gambon, our star of the Christmas Carol that we talked about earlier from Doctor Who. That is the version with Nicolas Cage. Michael Gambon does a wonderful voice performance in this animation. It's a bit strange and sometimes very intriguing. Matchup 2 is between Richard Coman, who played the role in a Western adaptation from 1998 called Ebenezer, playing an old Civil War soldier coming to visit Ebenezer. And he'll be facing off against Desmond Barrett, who played a version in A Christmas Carol that came out in 1999. That's the Patrick Stewart version. Matchup 3, I think a pretty popular one, from Mickey's Christmas Carol from 1983, Willie the Giant, as voiced by Will Ryan. And he'll be facing off against another Titan, in this case a Star Trek Titan, William Shatner, who took on the role in a very unusual gender-flipped Christmas Carol called A Carol Christmas in 2003. Matchup number 4, all the way back to 1951, my second oldest Christmas Carol, from a classic film, Scrooge, and he was played by Francis de Wolfe, will face up against a much more modern adaptation of Scrooge, Scrooged from 1988. And this is, of course, Carol Kane as the strange, quite violent fairy that shows Bill Murray the present Christmas day of 1980s New York. Matchup five will go to the BBC adaptation from 2019 of A Christmas Carol, quite a gritty Christmas Carol, where we have Charlotte Riley playing the role of actually Scrooge's uh, sister, sort of back from the past to sort of show him the present. And she will be facing off against Jim Carrey from The Christmas Carol of 2009, Robert Zemeckis' animated film, where Jim Carrey played and voiced and motion-captured multiple roles, including Scrooge and, of course, The Ghost of Christmas Present. Matchup 6, another favourite that I think might go far, from A Muppet's Christmas Carol, the winner of our last poll in 1992. And, of course, we had The Ghost of Christmas Present here being voiced by Jerry Nelson and performed by Don Austin as a very large, sort of human-inhabited, costumed character. And The Muppet's Christmas Carol will be facing off against A Christmas Carol from 1984. 
This is the version that had George C. Scott as Scrooge, but the Ghost of Christmas Present is played by Edward Woodward. A very fun name. Matchup 7 will be another animation from 1997's Christmas Carol, voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, with the Ghost of Christmas Present here being an animated female character. And she'll be facing off against one of my all-time favourites, a British Christmas musical version of Scrooge from 1970, where we had Kenneth Moore playing a rather rambunctious Ghost of Christmas Present. And the final matchup, one of our oldest versions of Christmas Carol, from 1935 Scrooge, with the Ghost of Christmas Present played by Oscar Aish, will be facing off against 1995, another gender-flipped Christmas Carol called Ebby, where the Ghost of Christmas Present was again female, played by Lorena Gale. So get voting in the first round on Twitter for better or worse, and the first round will last about five days online. Then we'll go through to the quarterfinals, and then those results will be fed back on my next episode at the end of November, and then we'll get the semi-finals and the finals in December. If you'd like to vote on those or get in touch or talk about your favourite versions of The Ghost of Christmas Present, have I missed one out that maybe you should think I should know? Is there a particular version of A Winter Wonderland that you really enjoyed that I played? Do you agree that Doctor Who Christmas Carol is the best festive special from the timey-wimey show from the BBC? Please get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all at Merry Britsmas. Happy blooming Christmas to you and all.